Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, as we begin today, we study the Word of God, we are drawn to the needs in our own church, and I think especially of, of Terry, who lost his brother today. Terry's not here, he's grieving, but Lord, as he hears us pray, may he know we prayed for him. And Father, there are others in this place, too, that need prayer. We ask today for love, to Jesus' love, not the fake kind, the real kind, to motivate us in our life, our choices, our mission. In Jesus' name, amen. There we go. It proved to be the most chilling scene of 1991. Two mountain climbers were walking along the base of a giant glacier in the Italian Alps when suddenly they noticed the frozen form of a mountain climber lying in a pool of water, face down. You know, the Alps are famous for taking the lives of people, and they thought, well, you know, this fellow climber died. What a tragic idea. But as they drew closer to the scene, they looked and they noticed that this was no ordinary mountain climber. His boots were made of leather and hay. His ice picks were made of stone. He looked dehydrated, kind of like a freeze-dried mummy version of a mountain climber. So they pulled him from the pool of water and a helicopter soon arrived and his body was airlifted to a hospital. When he was examined in the emergency room, they realized he definitely was not an ordinary mountain climber. In a matter of hours, scientists from all over the world were swarming around this mountain climber. And after some tests, they were amazed to realize that the body belonged to an ancient mountain climber in the Bronze Age who had taken a 4,000-year ride down a glacier to say hello to you and me in the 21st century, actually 20th century back then. For a man that had lived 4,000 years ago, he looked pretty good. That's not the picture, the previous picture. That's a movie they're making of him. He looked pretty good. Almost dead, but not quite alive. The modern science of cryogenics has come a long way since that mountain climber fell to an ice, into an ice crevasse 4,000 years ago. In California, there are centers of research in cryogenics, which is the science of the frozen, that have frozen people at the very instant of death. Have you seen pictures of this before? They die, they freeze them, now why do they do this? It works something like this. Because living cells are fragile, freezing must occur within a few seconds. Flash, frozen, boom, suspend an animation. In the meantime, the body really doesn't die. It just kind of hangs between life and death in this frozen, suspended animation. And people who hover between life and death in this form can literally hang on for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, if that condition is maintained as a steady state. And so the frozen state goes on and on and on. So why do rich people, and that's the only people who can afford this, when they're at the point of death, rich people say, freeze me up. Now why do they do this? They have a very important motive in their heart. They believe that at some point in the future, science will be smart enough, the disease that has taken their life almost will be curable, and then they'll be resurrected, unfrozen, the cure will be quickly administered, and they'll get on with life in a better state. It's, it's their version of a resurrection. In the meantime, now here's what you have to do to put up with this. In the meantime, they're almost dead, but not quite alive. Robert Frost wrote a poem that describes many Christians in the 20th century who are almost dead, but not quite alive. I ask you the question this morning, are you almost dead, but not quite alive? Are you coming to church 
And you're playing church, but the deep impact of Christ has not settled in your soul. I asked the question, look at the poem that he wrote. He said, Fire and Ice, that's the title. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. The world can come to an end because of hate or indifference. It doesn't matter. The frozen chosen at the end of the age are plagued by an attitude of indifference, and it can bring the end as well. So many are cold, but a few are frozen. Are you one of the frozen chosen? I ask the question, are you in a survival mode in your Christian experience rather than in a vibrant mode advancing the cause of Christ? Have you pulled back from Jesus and accepted an existence? I'd say not experience, an existence of cold indifference and waning love. Is your walk with God in a state of suspended animation? Are you satisfied with a cold religion of cryogenic Christianity that doesn't need God, that doesn't need the Bible, that doesn't need Jesus to save you? Are you one of the frozen chosen? Are you almost dead but not quite alive? That's the question I'm asking here today. Friend, is it possible to hide behind religious forms and externals, to come to church, play church, you know, give the money as you should, that's important, to also give your service, that's important, but to not give your heart to Jesus, to not be invested in the deepest part of who you are so that you are not alive in church, you're just existing in church. Is it possible to be raised a Christian in our denomination, the remnant church, and do all the right things to please God and yet to fail to really be a Christian when Jesus looks into your life? Is it possible to have an intellectual and philosophical understanding of truth or a community-based sense of what it means to be truth? You seek security in the shelter of people of like faith and to not get it that somehow Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and without him your life is bankrupt. Is it possible to be chosen by God for the last hour of human history, to have the prophetic message for the world and have all the right answers in your head, or at least think you do, and to be just as lost in your heart as those you seek to save? Is that possible? I'm asking questions today. Friend, Jesus warned us that this condition is exactly where his people would be on the eve of the advent of Jesus Christ. Something must break the hold of cryogenic Christianity at, on the last day or the church is in mortal jeopardy. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ sat down on the Mount of Olives. A few days before he was to suffer and die on the cross, he would later be crucified right there on the Mount of Olives. That is the, the historical site that is Golgotha. And looking at the temple adorned on the outside with glorious beauty, facing the eastern veil, the summer of the Mount of Olives, he saw the ugly part of his people on the inside. He saw the beautiful trappings of external religion, but he could see into the heart of the future of his people. And he wanted to speak out and to warn us of this lifeless form of cryogenic Christianity that would take over the church at the time of the end. Take your Bibles, open them with me to Matthew 24, 1 to 3. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
Luke 21, 5 says the temple was adorned with costly stones and gifts, kind of like a Christmas tree. They decked it out so that it would look glorious on the outside, but they were not working on the inside to get things right. The people spent a lot of time making their temple look gaudy and glittery when they should have been cleaning out the junk within their own lives so that the beauty of humility would have shown within the religion of the Jewish people. Look at verse 2. Then he asked them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Verse 3. It says, and when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? I mean, they couldn't imagine life without a temple. They couldn't imagine how there could be a future if the temple in Jerusalem went down. And so they mixed them up. They said, well, when the temple goes down, maybe the world comes to an end. How does it all happen? Jesus then proceeds to describe the history of the world leading up to the very end of time. We are living, according to the book of Daniel, in the time of the end. In verses 4 to 5, Jesus warns of an apostasy in the Christian church, very clearly stated. A false Christ who would lead many astray, a false prophets. He says, don't go after them. He then proceeds in verses 6 and 7 to outline other signs such as famines, earthquakes, wars, global disease. We've seen all of that. But in verse 8, he is very careful to point out that these signs in and of themselves are not the final indicators of the end. There is a greater evidence that the end is coming. He then describes these signs merely as the birth pangs, the beginning of the end, but not the end. In verses 9 to 14, Jesus touches the tip of the spiritual iceberg. Follow with me in your Bibles. Look at verse 9. It says, Then they will hand you over to be tortured. We'll put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away. They'll betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. Verse 12, we find the fatal face of cryogenic Christianity. We find the very focal point of Jesus' concern for our experience at the time of the end. Look at verse 12. He says, and because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. Some translations will say wickedness, like what we see on the screen here. The Greek word is anomia. It means lawlessness. And so when the Christian church would have an attitude that God's law is set aside, when Christians in their own experience would set it aside, when human thought, human philosophy, human attitudes would take the place of God's word, love would dissipate in the Christian church. Young people, I want to speak to you directly today. God has called on you as a generation to lift up the Word of God, the Bible, and to not compromise it in your generation. Do you hear me? He is calling on you to stand true for Him against the final forces of evil and to be true in every way so that the love of God can shine forth in you. Let's ponder these words in verse 12. Jesus says, because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. Now, is it possible, I ask the question, for a person's love to grow cold who never had love in their heart anyway? Is that possible? Can you have love grow cold if you never had it there? Answer that question with me. It's impossible. Is Jesus talking about believers or unbelievers in verse 12? I ask you the question. Who's he talking about? He's talking about believers. Let's look at the evidence for this. The word for love in verse 12 is agape love. Agape love is the New Testament word, the special word in the New Testament for God-giving love. In fact, etymologically, I believe it is coming from the Hebrew verb to give, 
For God so loved the world that he gave, giving is loving, agape, giving, God-giving kind of love. It's not the natural kind of love, but a supernatural love that only exists in the church when the Holy Spirit has regenerated our hearts. We can't manufacture this kind of love. We can't try hard to have this kind of love. It has to come on God's terms into our lives. It is the love that flows from the heart that has been touched by the gift of Jesus at the cross of Calvary. So you diminish the cross of Calvary, you don't have agape love in your life. You find something to do away with the atonement at the cross, you won't appreciate the sacrificial gift of God so that your heart can be generated. In verse 10, the Bible indicates this God-given love can be lost because of spiritual reversal in the life. An attitude of worldliness, of lawlessness can take it away from us. Three distinctive phrases are used by Jesus to describe the loss of this love. He says, they fall away. The Greek word is apostasia, they commit apostasy. Number two, he says, they betray one another. Number three, they hate one another. You can see the trend getting worse. When you lose God's law of love, appreciation for the cross, the Ten Commandments, and its right focus, the Holy Spirit ability to generate love in the church dissipates. And when the law of love is abandoned by Christians in the church, verse 12 tells us that the final and fatal face of unbelief in the church is cryogenic Christianity. The love of many will grow cold. How many of you do not want to be in that crowd? You want to be a vibrant, how many of you want to be a vibrant, loving Christian at the time of the end? I'm in that group. I want to share a story with you that happened in a church that I no longer pastor. It was really one of the reasons I left it. It was just a tipping point for me that I decided that maybe a different voice needed to speak there. It wasn't the only factor, but it was one. I pastored a church many years ago that was very vibrant in many ways, that was effective in winning souls to Christ, that valued children and valued reaching people who were outside of a knowledge of the truth. And Bible study culture was thriving in that church. I led out by doing home Bible groups myself. I mentored others to do it. I remember a breakthrough came for our church that was so amazing. I could just feel God in it. The Worldwide Church of God had collapsed. They were Sabbatarian. Many of those people who wanted to hang on to the fourth commandment found no place to worship. And they were struggling for their own identity. And God had led me to reach out to a whole congregation that needed Bible studies and growth and guidance. And I remember studying for a year with so many of these wonderful people. Their culture was different than ours. They were more careful than we were in our church. I, I'm not a liberal or a conservative. I'm a Christian. You hear what I'm saying? I don't go for isms. But I believe that what matters is love. You've you got to have a spiritual mindset to be open to others or you, you lose the divine opportunity to win them and then you can become an obstacle for that. And I was studying the Bible with them. I took them through the Sabbath. I took them through the book of, of Daniel, Revelation. We went through the 2300 days, the remnant message, the mark of the beast. They were all online getting every bit of it. They started attending our church. I remember when they came that, you know, the way we did it was different than the way they did it. They were making adjustments. And I was, I remember communicating to some of my core leadership, let's be careful, especially at this very important time, to not do things that would needlessly offend these dear people that we're trying to win. It was, was that a valid thing to do? Was it? Yeah. 
And I remember it, it was Christmas time. And we just got in our new facility. We built our new church. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful church, like our church here. This group did not have Christmas trees in their church. We had never had the opportunity to have a Christmas tree in our church. We wanted a Christmas tree. Yeah, I like Christmas trees too. Well, yeah, thank you, Katie. But for them, it was something that was a deal breaker at that time. It was hard to explain. It would take time to work with them to find the right mix. I asked my church that year to not have a Christmas tree that year for the sake of these dear people. There were 50 of them in play. And that year, my church decided to not do that. They went ahead and had a Christmas tree. We lost all of them. I can't tell you, there were nights I, I, I wept over this. I said, what is a Christmas tree compared to a soul? I like Christmas trees, but we were wanting to love those people. Those people needed a chance to adapt and come together. They were glorying in the message of Daniel Revelation and over an external, we showed them that we did not love them and they left our church. Now I'm telling you forthrightly something that I've carried for many years in my heart. Can I ask you a question? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our church? Is our church, we have a, how many of you believe we have a beautiful building? Raise your hand. We have a beautiful building. I don't want an ugly building. Are you with me? You know, was the temple in Jerusalem beautiful? Utterly. But you know what matters? You know what matters is what's inside the building. It matters is our attitude. The love we have or we don't have. That is what defines us as Christians. We are either alive for God or dead. We're either about the interests of others for the sake of the gospel or we're dead in the water and we think we're alive. And dear heart, I, I met a man this week and I, I'm just bearing my soul to you today. Is that all right to do that? I met a man this week who led me into this church many years ago. He was a pastor. He came to our prayer meeting. I've known him a little bit. His name is Austin Goodwin. He's going to be preaching here, not next week, but the following week. Pastor Austin Goodwin, in fact, as I saw him here, his hair was long. I said, Pastor Goodwin, why is your hair so long? Because I always knew him as this you know, guy with perfect hair, cut just right. He said, well, Pastor Mike, I've been working in the continent of Africa. I worked 35 years as a pastor in, my, in the denomination, same one I'm in. He said, I didn't get anything done. Now I'm retired and I'm getting everything done for God. He says, God has put in my heart to win the, the young people of the continent of Africa and I'm in my 70s. He said, so this is why my hair is this way. When I go to Africa and I'm ministering, holding meetings among those young people, leading them to Christ, training them. And he quoted this famous statement from the spirit of prophecy with a generation of youth rightly trained, the work of God will be finished. He said, I, I know that when they see my hair a little longer, it's white. They say, hey, Papa, how you doing? And it creates a connection between us. So I have my hair long for Africa. Should I go get it cut so I can show up here at Reaching Hearts? Now, what answer should I give Pastor Goodwin? How many of you think he should cut his hair so he can make us feel comfortable? How many think he should leave it the way it is so he can tell us what's happening in Africa? Okay, now when he shows up two weeks from now, you be easy on Pastor Goodwin. Pastor Goodwin is not a scholar type. He's not a, you know, I'm a scholar type. He's not a scholar type. 
He's a man of God type. And I remember him when I was living in poverty in Appalachia, coming to an Adventist church a little bit, trying to feel comfortable in a church school. I had matted hair. I had clothes that were awful looking. I didn't smell very nice. I came from the bottom of the rung in Appalachia. And I remember this man coming into my awful smelling house, sitting down on the couch, and treating me and my family, my brothers and sisters, and my mother had schizophrenia with dignity. Dignity. I'm telling you, you know, I, I don't think he ever got a big church in Potomac Conference. He never was famous as a preacher. He never was able to rise the ranks to become a world-class administrator. He, they kept him out there working in the, in the small churches of Appalachia. This man helped to win my family to Christ because he's a man of God. You see, this notion that we need great preachers and great teachers is nonsense. Young people, we need a generation of committed young people who are true to God as the needle to the pole, who will love people and love the message and not compromise it. You know, Pastor Goodwin told me, I took him out to a restaurant over here at uh, What's it, Pasta Plus? You ever been to Pasta Plus in Laurel, Maryland? Great parma, eggplant parmesan. Now, I know he doesn't have much money in his pocket. I said, Pastor, can I take you out to eat? He says, no, let's go home where it's really affordable. I said, I'd like to treat you, Pastor. So I took him there, and he ate plenty of that good butter with fresh, fresh baked bread. And he, was, and he began to talk to me. He says, Pastor Mike, you know what matters? He says, what matters is not most of the nonsense that we do. Because we really major in nonsense in most churches. He says there's only one thing that matters. It should define who we are, how we interact with each other. And so I'm listening to this sage of wisdom. He said, it's the great commission of Jesus. Go into all the world. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And he says, lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. And he says, the great commission is why we're here. He says, when this other stuff gets in the way, we lose our way. And he was trying to say, Pastor Mike, what kind of pastor are you going to be? About the Great Commission or about nonsense? I took it to heart. When, you, when Pastor Goodwin comes, he's going to put a bunch of slides up here. He's going to show you the exciting things that he's doing in Africa for those young people. I'd like to partner with him, but you make that choice when he shows up. Is that fair enough? Because we need to be like the church of Antioch, sharing and growing beyond our own ranks, as well as here too. A church that loves. What does it mean? By the way, our, we have great people working in our church. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? And so we don't have that group in our church right now. But we need to be mindful of those that are, I think. In contrast to cryogenic Christianity, a few will not surrender to the dark tide of ritualistic evil, materialism, show, pomp, and loveless apathy. Do you realize when we get off this planet, we're going to be broke? We're going to be poor and homeless? You know, the only beauty that God's looking for in the second coming is the kind inside your heart. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus points us to the goal of our struggle. Let's look at them on the screen. But the one who endures to the end, what does the text say? will be saved. 
And here is the great commission in another place. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The great commission is our job description. And nothing else matters, young people. That's why you're here on earth. That's why you're in the Reaching Hearts Church. That's why you're a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. We don't need to rewrite the Christian faith to be relevant in the last days. Rather, we need to obey the great commission in a heart of love and humility to take Jesus to take the Word of God, His prophetic message to the world and to be obedient to it. And you know what that means? It means you guys got to learn it. You need to dig into the books of Daniel Revelation, the book of Romans, the key books of the New Testament, and master them in your lifetime. Now, you guys don't use the Bible like, I mean, how many of you use a hard copy Bible? Raise your hand, the young people. Everybody else, keep your hands down. How many of you use your iPhone Bible? Ah, see, so we're in transition. Well, use your iPhone Bible. Let me tell you the merits of having a hard copy. A hard copy you can mark up. Can you mark up your iPhone Bible? You can? I'm sunk. All right, use your iPhone Bible. I'm all right with it. Tells you how dated I am, all right? All righty, hey, you're in motion here, okay. Now look at verse 44. It's, Jesus admonishes us strictly here. He says, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming and an hour you do not expect. In Matthew 24, 45, Jesus points to the Christian who will be ready for his coming. Now that's the verse I wanna focus on. I wanna be ready for his coming. They are Bible-believing Christians in the context. Verse 45 contains the key for real Christian living. In, verse, in this verse, Jesus calls for three loving, living components. Three loving, living components of a life of love that's vibrant in the church. So we should circle verse 45 is key. The three loving, living components are, number one, wisdom. All right, repeat it after me. What's the first one? Wisdom. What's the second one? Faith. The third one, service. Those are the three components. Verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them food at the right time? This question is answered by the three parables in Matthew 25. Each one of those words is, is mirrored by a parable that follows. These three parables provide the three necessary ingredients for number one, wisdom, number two, faith, and number three, service. And that's what we need to overcome the face of, cry, of cryogenic Christianity, to have a warm, loving experience. We need those three components. So the word wise of verse 45 corresponds to the parable, the five wise and the five foolish virgins. The word faithful in verse 45 corresponds to the parable of the faithful servant. Verse three, number three, to give them meat in due season is, it corresponds in, in, to the issue, the great judgment parable, the sheep and the goats, when we feed those that are the brethren when they're in jail and so on. And so it, it goes to the issue of service. And so the wise, the faithful, the servants, now, I want to look at these in their order very briefly. We're not going to go through all these parables in the depth we could. Let's look at loving, living component number one. The first parable of the ten virgins teaches us that the wisdom of God is realized only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? We, we don't get wise because we study hard. We don't get wise because we have the right Bible study plan. We have wisdom and knowledge because the Holy Spirit lives in us. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we don't have anything. And so our Bible is linked to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There are 10 virgins in this parable. In the parable, it's very clear. There were 10 virgins. They had, they, they had prepared, or some had, some hadn't. And the bridegroom did not show up. 
And so the bride feast didn't start and they fell asleep. It got late at night. In fact, uh, they had gone forth to meet the bridegroom and they were there in the street or wherever waiting for him and he didn't show. And in the parable, this delay symbolizes the delay that we experience at the time of the end when our Christian experience is challenged by the fact that Jesus hasn't showed up. The ten are virgins because they profess a pure faith. But in the parable, there is an unexpected delay. The Bible says in Matthew 25, 5, they all slumbered and slept. Have you ever struggled with seriousness in your Christian experience? Where you felt like you were sleeping a little bit on the job? Has that ever happened to anyone here? Now, if you say no to that question, you probably are worse than sleeping. You're probably dead. Because the fact is, real Christians struggle with sleeping and slumbering in our lives. The, the two Greek words used for slumber and sleep sheds a little light on this. Let me, the first was one for sleep is kathudo. It means to just sleep and let loose and go to, you know, zone out. And this kind of sleep in the Greek New Testament represents a carnal indifference to the things of God. In other words, you get so involved with the world, you no longer pay attention to spiritual things. The other word is the word for slumber is nustadzo, and it means to nod off and to sleep. It gives the idea of someone who's trying to stay awake but is overcome by circumstances of the night. But they're trying to stay awake. So there are really two groups in the story that they're separated by how hard they're sleeping. One group is overcome by the difficulty of the night and they're trying to stay awake. They're, they're slumbering, but the other group is saying, who cares, and let's just go ahead and sleep. Five wives, five, five foolish. Five implied slept, five slumbered. In Zechariah 4, one to six, oil, which is here used in the parable because they all have lamps full of oil. That's the only way you can see in the night. Oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Now, you've read Psalms 119.105. What does it say? Thy word is a lamp and a light. In, in Zechariah 4, we see there are two lampstands that are two olive trees. Oil is coming from them into a big bowl. And in that big bowl, as they're poured out, suddenly the prophet cries out, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel in verse 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What the parable is teaching us is that as Zechariah was asleep and he was, he was, the, the Lord woke him up, he saw these two lampstands which kept him awake. He saw the oil going into the bowl, and then he realized it's the word of a God, God that works through the Holy Spirit. So thy word is a lamp. It's an olive tree. Uh, God's word in the book of Revelation is represented by the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand over the Lord of all the earth or stand before him. And so the Holy Spirit, friend, now here's what I'm getting at. It doesn't come to us because we get emotional. It doesn't come to us because we choose to get excited. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to us because we have a capacity to be feeling and empathetic. The Holy Spirit comes to us when we are in the Bible. We are engaged in the Word of God in prayer and submission, and the Lord speaks to us through His Holy Word. Holy Spirit-filled people are Bible-believing people. Now here are five practical suggestions for receiving the Holy Spirit. Take your notepad out and your pen. Come on, this is school, and let's write these down. I'm going to stick them on the screen as best I can. Number one, if you want the Holy Spirit, here's some practical things you can put into your life. Set aside a time for personal prayer and devotions. That means reading a little bit of the Bible and praying to God. Preferably early in the day. If you can't, then you do it when you can. And ask God for the Holy Spirit deliberately every day in your prayer. You should start your day that way for sure. Ask God for the Holy Spirit. And let the Bible guide you. 
okay? Devotional life around the Bible. I don't care if it's two or three verses. Start with two or three verses. Number two, commit yourself to a small group Bible fellowship focused on the study of the Word of God and prayer. You know, not the study of other books, the study of the Bible and prayer. Now, Rennie, I think you have a group like that, don't you? Yeah, that's a good thing. And there are others. Prayer meeting is a group like that. If you show up at prayer meeting, it'll help you in that regard. Number three, make the Bible the major focus of your personal study, not books about the Bible. Now, who cares what some commentator said about the Word of God? Let the Word of God speak to you directly. Number four, renew your life to God every hour of the day. Now, how do you do that? Well, set your, they used to have these watches that beeped. You might have to set your cell phone. Just set your cell phone every hour to go off and then offer a 10-second prayer to the Lord. Lord, let me walk with you for the next hour. Try that. You will be walking with God as Enoch walked with God if you remember him every hour of the day. Now, one of the things I have found very helpful, Glenn, I'm going to speak to this, is our men's prayer fellowship on Sunday mornings. It occurs once a month, they're about, right? How many of you attend that? That has, my spiritual walk with the Lord has been increased directly because of an interaction with this prayer fellowship group. Now, it's not every week, but it does serve a vital function. It'd be wonderful for the women of the church to have a like meeting. Maybe you do. I'm not aware of it. Or many meetings of this nature. But we grow when we gather around the Bible to pray. And Glenn keeps it very focused. He keeps it focused on a practical application of spiritual truth in our lives. So we always get something new that's very good. Not theological, but practical. So I don't say much in that meeting. I let Glenn talk or others. But it speaks to me personally. We need more of that going on in our church. Number five, approach God in humility. What does that mean? Well, we tend to come to God thinking we have all the answers quite confident that we're in control of our lives. We should approach God in humility. Perfectionists can't approach God in humility. When you think you're perfect, you're an insult to God. So come to God as a sinner, that we are. Tell him your problems and he will listen to you. Isaiah 57, 15, for, this said, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is what? What does the text say? Is of a contrite and humble spirit. So we come to God as sinners in need of a savior and God will accept that to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite. I'm, not, I'm by nature an arrogant person. Are you in my club? I mean, I have my things, I will do, if I'm left to myself, I will rule my future. And so God requires a brokenness, a submission. So we don't tell God what we want, we listen to God. And that is the kind of people that'll be ready for the coming of the Lord. Loving component number two. Loving, living component number two. The second parable of the talent focuses on the importance of an active faith. Gandhi said that he would have become a Christian if he saw more Christians acting out the principles of Jesus' teachings. God wants people who will live out the teaching of Jesus. Now, I want to share with you something that happened this week. You see that row of lights that doesn't work right up there? Well, you'll see that one row there. We can't dim them. And we can't get them as bright as the rest. Our electrician, our electrical company, that's not our electrical company, blamed that on the pastor. I didn't do that. I can't climb up there and wire those, those things. Let me tell you what the drama of the week was. The only reason we have new lights is because of a dear, precious woman named Marion Keller and her company 
who gave us these lights. And they gave us these lights. They're not our builder. They gave us these lights. And then they paid the electrician to install them so we wouldn't have to. Was that an act of love? So when I called her Friday, I said, Marion, what's going on? She told me. She says, I haven't been able to go to bed all night for a couple of days because I feel awful about you not having lights in your church. I did everything I could. But they're not going to fix those. You're gonna, we're going to have to find another way. Now, right there was a test of our Christianity. I said, Marion, it's not your responsibility. You've done a beautiful thing for us. We love those lights. They're really beautiful. We'll figure it out. God will lead us to figure it out. We may have to bring somebody else in. In the future, we have to address it, but they're up. We know they work as lights. That was tested. I said, Marion, I want you to feel real good about the love act that you have done for our church. We love you. Now, I've been pushing for things for two years to get them right around here, and the Lord put me in a situation where I had to be gracious when I wanted to get the lights done. You see what I'm trying to say? People are more important than outcomes. You can push the buttons of someone and end their walk with Christ. I didn't have a successful interaction with the people who put those lights up. So this has been a hard work week for me, but deeply impressed upon me at the end of this week is the need to love people. If we mess up, we must say, I'm sorry. If we don't, we must hold our own, but do it in a way in which we're kind. And only the Holy Spirit can help us do that. And so to serve right, to follow the teachings of Jesus, we must listen to God. You know, the parable of the talents, this is illustrated. God, the, this, the householder gave five talents to a man, two talents to a man, one talent to a man, and then he left. He told him to invest the talents. When he came back, you have interest. The five-talent man did that. He doubled it. The two-talent man did that. He doubled it. The one-talent man did it. And the whole parable hinges on the one-talent man. The basic problem with the one-talent man is rooted in his misunderstanding of the character of his master. He thought his master was a hard man. He was afraid to lose his talent. Therefore, he didn't use his talent. And if he didn't use his talent, he didn't win anybody. Didn't do anything with it. Notice Matthew 25, verse 24. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Wow, imagine that the master had given him the talent having to hear that from him. When I was a young boy, my Bible teacher, Mr. Brown, brought me into his home and helped me to make it through my last year of of Academy at Fletcher Academy. I had no money to go to that boarding school. He had done so with my best friend earlier. His name was Joe Weaver, who was our CPA for much of the work we do here at working with Tom. And I remember as young boys sitting there with Mr. Brown, the school year had come to an end and he had a Plymouth car out there. It was a pretty nice older car. And he said, would, any, would one of you boys like to buy this car from me? And I turned to Mr. Brown and said, I said, no, I don't have any money to buy a car. My friend Joe was wiser than me. He said, Mr. Brown, how much do you want for the car? And Mr. Brown said, one dollar. My face dropped. I would have gladly bought that car for a dollar. But you see, what was the difference between me and Joe? My view of Mr. Brown was not as good as Joe's. I thought that he would have a high price 
And Joe kind of felt that maybe he was trying to give the car away. You see the difference? It affected the outcome. He got the car. I did not. Loving living component number three. The third parable, the sheep and the goats, illustrates the importance of selfless service for the weak and the lost. You know, to talk love is not enough. We must model it by living it in service for others. John Dunn has said this, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We're not islands somehow disconnected from others. He's right. Cryogenic Christians are experts in island navigation. They have learned to dodge the lonely and the lost soul that is sinking in a sin of misery so they can just get along on their way to church. They don't get involved in issues of Christian justice and morality like saving the unborn or protecting the lives of innocents because they don't want to take the risks of being noticed by people. Maybe they'll lose their religious freedom if they stand for righteous causes at the time of the end. Dear heart, they preach all about God as the poor die without a saving knowledge of God. And they can give that saving knowledge by kindness. God has called on our church to be a people of prophecy, to be the good Samaritans of the earth, to take the knowledge of prophetic truth and love that will save millions of souls. We are not to be idle. Yet the Cryogenic Christians enjoy communion as people starve around them for the simple body and blood of Jesus Christ shared with them in a home Bible study or on the streets where homeless live and the like. You know, one of the things I appreciate about Pastor Micah's homeless ministry is that they go to where the people are. How many of you go with them? You ever been with a homeless out there? Dragging clothes like Fred used to do and preaching the gospel out there in Baltimore? I mean, that's huge. I've been a few times. I usually pick up pieces here. But it's wonderful to know that you can take the message where the people are. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Open your Bibles with me. I want to read this to you without commentary. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, O blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see thee hungry and feed thee or thirsty and give thee drink? And when did we see thee a stranger and welcome thee or naked and clothe thee? And when did we see the sick or in prison and visit thee? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it not, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, when did we see thee hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to thee? 
Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How many of you here want to live forever? I want to be the kind of person that Jesus describes right there. I need to grow. Do you need to grow? I need to grow. I'm not, I haven't arrived. I want to be the kind of person described there. The opposite of cryogenic Christianity is holiness. Holiness is not a mystical experience reserved only for the enchanted, the emotional, the perfect looking types that tell us how perfect we need to be. They're not holy, they're hypocrites. The word holy means being separate. That's what the Hebrew word means. The Greek carries the same idea. It means setting yourself aside for the glory of Jesus. It means saying no to the world and yes to Jesus. It is a word the Bible uses to describe a man or woman who has no divided interests, who is holy his. Norman Lewiston was loved by his family. He was the perfect father, an outstanding doctor. And when he died suddenly, hundreds gathered at his funeral at Stanford University to mourn his death. In fact, all three of his wives came to the funeral. You see, Norman married three times, but never told the other that he had divorced. He lived a separate life. He managed it in the shadows of his life. And in the end, it was plain to everyone that Norman was a man of divided loyalties. A life of lies is what he lived, and it caught up to him at his funeral. One hospital spokesman put it this way. He was the last person you would suspect of having a complicated personal life. He made important contributions to medicine and to the well-being and survival of his patients and how his now his reputation is colored by a personal life that doesn't really make any sense. Friend, in the judgment that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25, cryogenic Christians will not stand with their divided loyalties and cold hearts. There will be no place in heaven for the frozen chosen. Only one thing God will be looking for in that day. What we have done for him in the person of those in need, that is holiness. He will be looking for men and women who have accepted the gift of Jesus at the cross, and it matters in how they treat others. He'll be looking for those whose hearts have been strangely warmed, as John Wesley said, by the white hot heat of the Holy Spirit of love because they got into their Bibles and they lived it in service for others. He'll be looking for the faithful and the wise who see Jesus in the face of an orphan, a widow, of someone who is impoverished, someone in need, someone who's hurting. He'll be looking for a people who are wholly his at all cost and who love him from the heart for all eternity because they proved it in the life. Cryogenic Christianity, let's say no to that. What do you say? Let's embrace the cross of Christ. Let's study our own actions. Let's be a humble people, but let's not be a fanatical people. You know the difference? We don't want fanaticism. Let's be a humble people and let our community know, let our neighbors know that we're people who can forgive each other. We're people who can be forgiven. We're people who love them for Jesus' sake.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.